a couple of weeks ago, we started our current series called uh, Generous, uh, which is our response to God's goodness. And uh, last Sunday and today, we are collecting uh, non-perishable food items, and uh, we also kicked off a a benevolence fund uh, within our church to not only support those uh, outside the walls of our church, but even those in our church that might have need here. And so this is something new for us as a cornerstone as our church and our leaders have been praying through it our staff has really been thinking about how this hopefully could be a blessing and a useful way uh, for us to really love one another Uh, in the scriptures especially in the acts 2 community uh, one of the marvelous things about uh, their uh, their character was that no one had too much and no one had too little Uh, they shared everything that they had Uh, and i hope that we can become a church that can become generous in that way sharing what we have loving one another supporting one another Uh, Later on today, after our service, we're going to have a town hall, and we'll be explaining how we're also supporting and working toward the needs of those around us, our global neighbors as well. And so uh, that's something we'd like to invite you to be a a part of and to to receive. But uh, today I want to share um, a passage from Matthew chapter 6 as we round out this service called Generous. Uh, This is uh, from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was basically a sermon that said, If you live according to the gospel, this is what it should look like. If you take the gospel seriously, this is what your life should look like. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you follow popular culture, this is what you'll look like. But if you follow me, you'll be set apart. And so he's constantly giving us choices and options. Saying you can go the way of the world and you can live for yourself. Or you can go the way of the cross And you can live for eternity. You can live for God and his holiness and his righteousness. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus uses some simple biblical metaphors to address money, materialism, and greed. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 6. And we can read this together beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of God. Can we pray together one more time? Ask God to illuminate our minds and hearts. Father, we come before you and we ask for your blessing this morning. As we gather in your presence, as your people, Lord, would you be the voice that we all hear? Would your spirit be moving amongst us? Father, Lord, will we fix our eyes on you? Will we set our hearts upon your truth and your will and your way for us? Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. You know, uh, the statistics in the Bible on how often Jesus talks about money is pretty astounding. In other words, if I talked about money as much as Jesus talked about money, I would have to devote an entire sermon every single month every year on money. Literally, a quarter of Jesus' parables are on the issue of money, materialism, greed, and possessions, and stewardship. Uh, If you read the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, 
one out of every 10 verses addresses the topic and the issue of money. And the question is why? Why does the Bible put such an emphasis on this? I mean, why didn't the Bible talk about adultery instead? You know, why didn't the, the Bible talk about lying or about, you know, about honesty? I mean, why does Jesus go so hard and so often on the issue of money and greed? Well, it's because he's talking about an idolatry in our life that's not only on the surface but also deep within. And the power of greed and materialism is that it blinds us to the fact that we are sinning in this sin. Jesus doesn't have to talk about adultery this much because when you're committing adultery, it's obvious. When you go to bed with somebody who's not your spouse, it's not like you're halfway in and you realize, I think I might be committing adultery here. No, when you're sleeping with somebody that you're not married to, it's pretty obvious. Not only when you're sleeping with them, but before you get into bed with them and even after you come out. But greed is hidden. No one thinks they're greedy. No one's ever come to me and said, Pastor Eugene, I need to confess my sins to you. I am so greedy. People will talk about every other sin that they've struggled with, but nobody ever says, Eugene, I am so greedy and I don't know what to do with myself. And that is why Jesus spends so much time and care and emphasis speaking to his followers about what it means to treasure heavenly treasure instead of earthly treasure, to fix our eyes and set our hearts on the things above and not the things that are just temporal and passing and fleeting. That's why Jesus addresses it so much. You see, within uh, our sort of uh, culture, there are uh, different brackets. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And the problem is we compare ourselves with people in our own bracket. And we look across the room and we look at the people that are better dressed than we are, who drive nicer cars than we do, who make more money than we do. And we look at them and we point the finger and we say, they're the greedy ones. They're the ones that need to be sharing more, not me. I'm barely, I barely have enough. In reality, if you look around the world, every single one of us in here, we're rich, we're wealthy, we are so blessed. And so in this series, I want us to take a step back and begin with the assumption that we all struggle with greed and materialism. Not, oh, you know, this is not my problem. I don't even have any money. How can I be greedy? But I want us to all begin with the assumption that this is our idol. This is our false God that we worship. The security, the status, the comfort, and the control that money gives to us. Now, Jesus uses three easy, basic biblical metaphors for us to think about what it is we treasure, what it is we serve, what it is that we place all of our lives on. And he begins at the beginning of this part. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And what Jesus is implying here is that it's a no-brainer. If you're going to spend your entire life accumulating treasure, storing up for yourselves, don't store up for yourself a treasure that can be lost, that, that's corruptible, that's insecure. Spend your entire life storing up a treasure that will never be lost, that will always be secure and will never be devalued. It's a no-brainer. Jesus is making a comparison between two. And he says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where it can be taken away from you. Now, oftentimes we read this and we kind of dismiss it because the way that Jesus words this doesn't seem to apply to us. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, you have to realize that Jesus' audience in the ancient world Nothing was safe and nothing was secure. 
people's clothes, and they didn't have much clothes, but when, their clothes could easily be d- damaged to mildew if, it was a, if they were living in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a damp climate, or moths could come in and literally eat holes through all of their clothes. They could lose their wardrobe just like that, all of it. Oftentimes their food would be infested with rodents and rats and mice. They didn't have refrigerators and pantries and cabinets and mousetraps the way that we do to be able to protect our food. They had to store it in their homes and oftentimes rodents would come in and literally destroy and spoil the food that they had. And they didn't have high-tech security systems the way that we do. They didn't have deadbolt locks on their doors. They lived in a time where a thief could easily slip in and out of their home and take anything of value and anything of worth. You see, Jesus is talking to people who knew that their earthly possessions were incredibly insecure, that they could be lost at any time, at any moment. But fast forward 2,000 years, we read this. You know, don't store up for yourselves earthly treasures where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. You're probably thinking to yourself, when's the last time I lost anything to rust? When's the last time I lost anything to a moth or a bug? Maybe I've had my house broken into, but since then I've put in a deadbolt. I installed a security alarm. I've got cameras. I've got automatic lights. I've got all these things now to protect myself. Well, just because we aren't living in ancient times doesn't mean that what we have isn't incorruptible and devaluable. Think about it. Maybe you treasure designer jeans, and they're worth a lot to you. But in a couple of seasons, when they're out of style, how much are they worth? It might not be a moth that comes in and pokes a hole in your jeans, but just give it a couple seasons and they become worthless anyway. Maybe your money is saved in a bank. It's protected. It's locked up. It's secure. But what happens when the economy tanks and a recession hits? It's like the banks become the pickpockets then, don't they? See, even in our modern time, even though we might not be able to understand exactly what Jesus was talking about to his audience, if we are honest with ourselves, The possessions that we have can be taken from us like that. You could get sick tomorrow. You could lose your job. Your company could downsize. You could be thrown onto the streets. Somebody could literally, excuse me, they could steal your identity online and they could wipe out all of your funds. It happens all the time, every day. And even if you have something that you can hold on to dearly and it will not lose its value but retain it for the rest of your life, when you die, you can't take it with you. You can't. And so why do we spend all of our energy and all of our time and all of our resources trying to store up things that are insecure? Jesus is saying it's a no-brainer. Don't be consumed with things that can be taken away. But instead, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, spend time growing in Christ-likeness, increasing in your faith and your hope and your love, becoming a better neighbor, being more hospitable, serving others, being generous with your possessions. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, do the things on earth that will last into eternity, not the things that are just here today and literally gone tomorrow. You don't need to ensure heavenly treasure. You don't have to safeguard it. You don't have to protect it. You don't have to hoard it because no one can take that from you. And this is what Jesus is calling us to devote our lives to. 
And then he says in verse 24, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knows that the way we use our money and our attitude towards our money reveals what we treasure most. It reveals what we enjoy, what we delight in. For instance, let's say that you, didn't, you, you don't enjoy football. Let's say for you, football is not enjoyable. It's not entertaining what, one bit. And, uh, and let's say somebody comes up to you and they're a good friend or maybe they're your child or your spouse or, or parent. And they're, they ask you for one thing and they say, could you just take me to one football game? And say, okay, you know, I'll do this one thing for you. And so you look up tickets online and you realize, oh my goodness, it's going to cost me a fortune just for the tickets. And then I've got to go in there and I've got to buy a, you know, a $10 Coke and a $20 hot dog. And ah, oh, and you get all upset. But let's say you're someone who loves football. Let's say you're somebody who you can't wait till after church. You know, you go home, you turn on the TV, you, you, you throw out the nachos, you go to a sports bar, whatever. Let's say you love this stuff. And somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I just have one wish. Could you take me to a football game? Yeah, of course. A couple hundred dollars, no problem. How many hot dogs do you want? You know, how many drinks do you want? How many nachos? You want cotton candy? I mean, there is, you will not spare a dollar towards something that you enjoy, towards something that you treasure. Isn't that true? What is it? that you treasure, that your money reveals. Oftentimes people say, look at your bank account, look at your checking account, look at your credit card statement. That is the the most clear litmus test of what it is you treasure. Where it is you put your security, your sense of status, your sense of worth, it's in those things. Maybe it's in gadgets, maybe it's in clothes, maybe it's in food, maybe it's in vacations. It can be any, and those are all good things. I'm not condemning them, and I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy those things. But where are we storing our treasures? Where are we amassing our treasure? Is it in something that's temporal and fleeting or eternal? And Jesus calls us out, and he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he says you can have earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. You can have the one that anyone can take away and you can lose at any time, or you can choose the one that is secure for eternity. It's up to you. It's up to you. And then he goes on and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now he's talking about money and materialism and possessions and now he's talking about anatomy. It almost doesn't seem to fit here. Where is Jesus going with his uh, train of thought? He says, now the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then if then the light within you is darkness, how great that darkness. Where is he going with this? Now, you have to understand that Jesus is using this as a figure of speech. This is a metaphor, okay? Because think about it. Our eyes give us the ability to do everything that we can do. With our eyes, we can read, we can work, we can run, we can jump, we can exercise, we can go anywhere we want. As long as we can see, we can use our hands and move our feet and and type and, and do all kinds of things. We can interact with people. But without our sight, without our vision, if we're blind we can do almost nothing. We are severely debilitated. We cannot see where we're going, what we're doing, who we're with. If we were to shut off all the lights in this room and close off all the curtains and it was completely dark, we would be in darkness. But it would be no different if our eyes didn't work. Now what Jesus is saying is, where is your ambition? Where do you set your heart? Because in the Bible, where you set your heart It's the same thing as saying, where do you fix your eyes? 
And what Jesus is saying is where you set your ambition, where you fix your eyes, will determine whether or not your entire life will be filled with light or will be filled with darkness. What is it that you're living for? What is your hope and what is your dream? What is the vision for your life? Is it more money? Is it more toys? Is it more comfort? Is it more status? Is it more fame? These things, granted, could be used for great good. But in and of themselves, oftentimes we worship them as false idols and we're blinded to the fact that it controls us. And instead of being filled with light, now that our eyes are fixed on worldly ambition, we're walking in the dark. That's how important it is for us to not only set our hearts on things above, but to fix our eyes on heavenly things. Jesus is using an interchangeable metaphor here, and he's calling us all to look to him, to look to the cross. And then finally, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And as much as we'd like to just take this for what it's worth, literally, I feel like in our own way, in our own language, in our own response, we try to compromise. We try to justify, well, actually, you can. It's kind of like working for two employers or two companies or, you know, being a contract for hire. I can serve you and I can work for you and I can produce results for you and I can serve you, I can work for you and I can produce results for you. It's like having multiple professors and giving your A-plus effort to each of your professors and not just one and flunking out in your other classes. I can have money and I can serve God too. I can spend it all on myself and I can give away 10% too. When in our day and age, 10%, it might be a lot for many of us, some of us, but for a lot of people in our country, 10%, you won't even miss it. You won't even miss it. It doesn't cut into your lifestyle. If you're making a million dollars or a billion dollars, 10% is not the same as if you're only making $20,000, obviously. What Jesus is saying here is this. You might be able to work for two masters, but you're only a slave to one. You might think that you can serve money and possessions and your materialism and give allegiance to God, but when you're a slave, you only have one master. And if it comes between God and money and you're giving a little bit of yourself to money, then you can't give yourself to God because God doesn't want what's left. God doesn't want what's left. God wants everything. I said this before, but this is not a series about what I want from you and what God wants from you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. Money is just the surface idol. What this series is about is not about what I want from you, but it's about what I want for you. It's not what God wants from you. It's what God wants for you. He wants you to have salvation in life that is truly life. He wants you to live for something that's bigger and greater than anything that just comes and goes. And he knows that this is the, one of the most powerful ways that the church can be a living witness and testimony to a world that is so corrupted by greed, is so hurt by economic and financial injustice and a poor distribution of resources, that if the church could be the one place, the one community, the one institution where we are not slaves to our money, where we are not slaves to our possessions, where we are not slaves to our credit cards and our accounts, 
but instead we use them as tools that we see that God has entrusted us as managers of his resources and we're able to leverage them and to use them in ways to bless many. God knows that the, the church can become unstoppable and it becomes incredibly magnetic because you become generous with your time, with your money, with your resources. You're always willing to give because you realize everything you have is a gift from God. And everything that you've used to earn those gifts are also gifts from God. And so even though you might have put in the time, even though you might have worked your butt off, even though you might have worked your way through school or gotten that job, who is the one who gave you the mind to think and the air to breathe that's free every second of every day? Who's the one that allowed you to be born in the 21st century instead of 5,000 B.C. in Iceland? (laughs) I mean, come on. The fact that you're living and alive today is a gift. How will you steward this gift? How will you manage the resources that God has entrusted to you? So I just want to close with this. How generous should we be? How do we go about becoming generous? Generous is one of the clearest ways, one of the clearest signs to show and to reveal that we are no longer slaves to money, that we have cut the umbilical cord to our dependence on our possessions. Well, let me give you three quick applications. First of all, you've got to come to a place where you understand that giving is something that should be done joyfully and not begrudgingly and painfully. And how do we do it joyfully? How do you give away money joyfully? Money that's not going to give anything back to you. There's no opportunity cost. You're just giving it away, no strings attached. How do you become the kind of person that can let go of your things and not do it begrudgingly, but do it joyfully? Well, you have to start at the cross You have to realize that God treasures you above all things, that he treasured you above all things, and that it was his son who gave up his status, his power, his wealth, his glory and his honor. He gave all those things away freely so that if he did, if he sacrificed those things, that maybe we would be saved. For Jesus, it was worth it. And so he gave freely. He did not tithe his life. He did not tithe his love He gave himself completely and totally. And if we understand that he did that because he treasures us, because we are the apple of his eye, that there is nothing to him that is more beautiful, more pleasurable, then we realize that it's not the clothes that we wear that gives us worth. It's not the kind of car that we drive that makes us feel like we've arrived, that we've achieved. How much money we have in our bank account, how early we can retire, what kinds of restaurants we can dine in. These aren't the things that give us value and worth. That's not what our self-esteem depends on any longer. It now depends on exclusively the cross of Christ because we know that he gave up everything to love us and to save us. You see, again, the way we spend our money, it just shows us that we are addicted to status. We're addicted to security. Maybe you don't spend a lot of money. Maybe you save it all away. You say, I don't have a problem with greed. I save it all well, you can be just as stubborn and greedy by saving it all, hoarding it away because that's where you put your security. Generosity is the only way you can tell that you've cut the umbilical cord to your possessions, to your wallet, where you have said to God, completely and wholly, I follow you. So we have to give joyfully. And the only way we can give joyfully if we realize that we are God's treasure, 
In, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus gave up everything to become poor, so that in our poverty we could inherit everything and be rich. We are rich. So we must give joyfully by understanding that we are God's treasure. We also have to give sacrificially. Again, Jesus didn't tithe himself to us. God didn't send a cousin. God didn't send a nephew. God didn't send an angel. God sent his son, okay? The most sacrificial gift in relationship that he could give up. He sent his son. He didn't send an angel or an army of angels. He sent his only begotten son. He gave sacrificially, and so we too must give sacrificially, which means we have to give in such proportions that it affects the way we live. I'm not saying be irresponsible and don't care for your family or don't pay your rent or just go, you know, give it all away, take all of your money and give it all away and live on the streets. That's not what I'm saying. Don't be irresponsible. I'm saying this. Be generous to the degree that you feel it. That every time you come to a purchase, to a spend, to a paycheck, the cross is right there at right there that it has to be sacrificial, that it has to cut into the way that you live. As one pastor heard, I, I preached once in a sermon that I heard, give until it hurts. Hurts. Then you're giving enough. And you know what? You're not giving it all away because God will restore you. In Malachi 3, it's the only place where God in the Bible asks his people to test his faithfulness. In Malachi 3, God tells the people, give me a tenth of your storehouse, of your produce, of your harvest. Give me a tenth. Give me more than a tenth. Test me in this and see if I will not return to you abundantly more than what you have given. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not the health and wealth gospel. I'm not asking you to, to tithe, you know, incredible amounts of money and then God will give you everything. He'll give you, that's not what this is. God is saying, you say you have faith in me? Well, test how faithful I am to you by revealing your faithfulness in generosity. Take that step. Give to my work. Give to my cause. Give to the needy. Give to the work of the gospel. And see if I will not bless you more. And the truth is, sometimes that blessing is monetary. Maybe you'll be blessed with more money and he'll give you control or, or stewardship or management over more funds and more resources. Or maybe it'll be something, maybe for the first time in your life, if you become generous and you trust God, maybe for the first time in your life, you'll no longer worry and stress out and be anxious about money. It won't dominate you anymore. You won't be thinking about how much you can spend and how much you have to save and how much you have to make. Now you'll live freely. You'll know that you have more than enough because God has given it to you and that'll be a blessing in and of itself. You won't lose sleep over your retirement or your portfolio or your income or whatever. Or maybe for the first time in your life, you'll find that your value and your worth is not in how you look, how people perceive you. It's not in what you eat and where you dine and what you drive and where you live. The titles or the degrees behind your name for the first time in your life, you will come to understand that now my identity, my value, my worth is in Christ. And oftentimes that does not come until we cut off the umbilical cord to that counterfeit God called greed, materialism, and money. And that we fully connect ourselves with Jesus Christ. 
So we must give sacrificially, we must give joyfully, and lastly, we must give intentionally. And this is very important for us because oftentimes people come up and say, Eugene, does this mean that when I walk on the street and I see a homeless person, I should empty my wallet, I should give them something to eat, I should give them money? Well, hey, if you want to do that, you can, but this is what I mean by giving intentionally. If you are just moved by an emotion, you see somebody on the street and you have pity for them, you're not giving generously. You're giving sympathetically and emotionally. If you're flipping the channels and you see an orphan on the TV and the guy comes and says, for $30 a month you can feed this kid and send him to school and you're moved in your heart and you start crying, you're giving emotionally, not intentionally. And studies will show that people who give intentionally always give incredibly more than people who give emotionally and sentimentally, who just respond to the needs that they see. We must give in a premeditated way. We must set aside. I would, in fact, encourage you, if you want to give to the people on the street, you can, but I would say, you know what, instead of just waiting until you cross somebody on the street who could use some change, why don't you set aside a part of your paycheck every month and give it to a homeless shelter? Because they could take that money and do a lot more with it than you can by just giving somebody a couple of dollars on the street. You have to be intentional. You have to be wise. You have to be good stewards. So give intentionally, not emotionally, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly. Don't give just because somebody comes and makes you feel sorry or guilty. This is not a sermon series about guilt. This is a sermon series about freedom and joy. No longer being a slave to our self-image and our self-worth based on our money and our possessions. But recognizing that we are God's beloved, that we are his children. That's what this series is about. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for us. It's not what I'm trying to take from you. As a pastor, my salary does not increase or decrease based on your giving. I just, you just need to know that. All right? If you give more, then I'll, give, I'll make more. No, it has nothing to do with that. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for us. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to be rich in grace, rich in love, rich in hope and faith and charity and generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you today that we uh, can gather in your presence and, and worship you freely. And Lord, we thank you that you have uh, lavishly blessed us with so much, so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and what other people have around us so that we're comparing ourselves. Lord, help us to stop coveting what our neighbors have, what our friends have, what our coworkers have. Lord, help us to see that you have given us so much, that you've given us your son, and that we are your treasure, and that our worth is in you, our value is in you, and you alone, God, that we were bought at a price, that you gave us your son, that on the cross we were purchased, and that is our worth. And so, Father, today, Lord, as we reflect on this, as we consider it, as we process it, as we struggle and wrestle with our own greed and materialism and our selfishness, as we consider what it might mean to live more simply and to be more generous, as we consider what it might mean 
to give more than we've been giving or to begin giving for the first time. As we consider what it might mean to change our lifestyle and reprioritize our values, Lord, would it all come because you are inviting us freely into life with you, the abundant life with you, not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, not because it's commanded, but because we want to and because that we know that's life and that's truly life. So Lord, we come before you and we offer you our lives. We give you our hearts. And Lord, we offer to you all of our treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.